Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Future subscribers to my OnlyFans, Trek Cultures, Adam Cleary here, and welcome back to another exciting installment of what is either known as the Dolphin series, or depending on which order these go out in, the Fireman's Pole series. That's either a callback or a clue, you decide. Anyway, we've been looking forward to this one for a long time because A, it's possibly the most iconic ship in Star Trek history, just my opinion, just my opinion, and also because it required extensive research to actually make it interesting. Now, the reason for that is because despite it being the most iconic ship in Star Trek history, just my opinion, just my opinion, it's actually arguably the most short-lived. You see, that's because the USS Enterprise NCC-1701 refit slash the USS Enterprise NCC-1701-A refit is arguably the least seen in Star Trek history. Like, yes, the motion pictures and all the films and everything were brilliant, and there was loads of them, but think about the actual screen time that ship takes up compared to, say, how much you saw of the Enterprise D or the Defiant or Voyager across seasons worth of television. Actually, pretty scarce. That's a bit of Star Trek, isn't it? You might not see the outside very much, but all the action, everything important, takes place on the inside of that ship, which means the detail that has to go into constructing it, however short-lived or however rarely used, is... Oh, I don't know what the word is. Is meticulous. Is de- The detail is detailed, let's say that. Basically, if the original USS Enterprise looked exactly like something that you should find on a 1960s sci-fi TV show, the refit Constitution class looked exactly like something that you should find in the major motion pictures in the Hollywood of the 80s and 90s. It is glorious. So what do you do with six movies and 30 years of hindsight? Well, if you are Trek culture, you find 10 secrets of that ship that you need to know. And, well, my name is Adam Cleary and that's the title. That was bad. Number 10, another used starship. Now, if you'd be so kind as to cast your mind back to us doing this exact video for the Enterprise E, you will know that a small discrepancy in the plot, namely that it appears that they somehow made that ship in about five seconds after the destruction of the Enterprise D, was simply solved by pointing out the ship already existed under another name. It was just when they needed it, it was rechristened Enterprise. And one little wrinkle in the history of the Enterprise A, which is of course the rebuild of the ship after it is destroyed in the search for Spock, is that it was already in existence. was another refit Constitution class that just happened to be zipping around the galaxy called the USS Yorktown. That's why in Star Trek IV, when Kirk's log says that it's only been like three or four months since the events of the last film, meaning that they had to whip that ship up really quickly, 
quickly in order for it to be uh, pressed in service. That doesn't make sense. They didn't. It was already built. It was already doing Star Trek stuff. It's just that they renamed it. Now, this has happened lots in Star Trek. Happened with the Enterprise E. Of course, happened with the Defiant. That was the Sao Paulo for a long time. I don't know why I said that like James Brown, but I did anyway. That was the Sao Paulo for years before it was the actual Defiant. So, not uncommon this, but interesting. Oh, and just worth quickly pointing out, there is actually a non-canon reference to this in Mr. Scott's Guide to the Enterprise, which is the exact same story, except it was called the Taiho, which is not as good a name as the Yorktown. I think if I was a captain, it would be of the Yorktown. That's another story. Number nine, Universal Studios ruined the paint. Okay, so for the Enterprise's first appearance on the big screen in the motion picture, a genius paint scheme was devised for it. It was going to be a series of interlocking panels called Aztec patterning. It was all going to be coloured in by this brilliant airbrush artist called Zuzana Swansea. It looked absolutely stunning. Metallic paint, a big gloss, a sheen. It was genuinely going to be one of the most eye-catching things ever committed to cinema. Like this thing would reflect different colors depending on the intensity or the angle of the light being shined on it. That, like in real life as well, not a visual effect. That's how they built it. That's what it was supposed to do. Then of course, nobody actually thought about the implications of filming this. And when they got it under studio lights, the VFX team were like, wow, that's really reflective and makes everything an absolute nightmare. So most of the shots in the first couple of films are done in incredibly, incredibly low light, which means you can't see any of the detail or the patterning on it. It, uh, it gets worse though, this, because after the filming of Star Trek Paramount then loaned the model of the ship to Universal Studios for their big Star Trek attraction thing and because they had to shoot some extra shots for that they looked at it and thought oh, that's going to be quite complicated what with a what with a sheen on it so they just they painted the whole thing grey just one big thick coat of grey paint and when they gave it back they went to go film the final frontier and someone was like oh do you know this is um this it's covered in grey paint, this, so they had to then fix all of that, even under the incredible time constraints of the film anyway. So it's just, you know what, the, the lesson here, the lesson here is just never try. Number eight, the bridge changed every film. Chris, can we get some, um, how do I put this? Comical elevator music, please. Yeah, thank you, that, that'll do. So this was the bridge in the motion picture. This was the bridge in The Wrath of Khan. This was the bridge in The Search for Spock. This was the bridge in the voyage home. This was the bridge in the final frontier. And this was the bridge in the undiscovered country. <laughs> anyway, interesting story. The final two images you saw there were, where did they crop up in the next generation? Because we love, we love the whole Paramount used the sets for loads of different things. We love that, that's our gimmick here. Where have you seen that before? It's the battle bridge and data science lab. Oh, it doesn't just stop there, though. It was the bridge for the Enterprise B and the Amagosa Observatory in Star Trek Generations. So, just honestly, the money Paramount could squeeze out of a Star Trek set is incredible. Number seven, damage between films. Got a little fact for you here, accompanied by two very different reasons for that fact. One of which is incredibly boring and practical. The other is grounded in some sort of canon law. All right, so at the end of Star Trek Two, this is the amount of damage that is seen on the Enterprise, because they know got into that fight with the Reliant and pew pew pew, one big fleet, oh, they took us out with one shot, they knew exactly where to hit us, you've, you've seen the film, etc, etc. Now, in Star Trek 3, the damage looks like this. That is more damage 
So what happened is entire areas of that ship that have just been hit and battered that weren't hit or battered in the film. So what happened there? Well, the boring answer is that the producers looked at it and thought, actually, you know what? Given how big and catastrophic that fight was, doesn't look beat up enough. So let's just beat it up a bit more. So when it's going into space, we get more of a feel for the battle. That's the boring answer. The slightly canon answer, and that it's not actually canon at all, never mind, is that we know they must have made at least one stop off between those films, because where is David? Where is Carol? Where is Savick? Where is the entire rest of that trainee crew? They certainly weren't in the start of the third film. So we know they must have stopped somewhere and done something, so we can then assume that when they stopped somewhere and did something, they had a little fight! That's all I've got. I don't know, maybe the damage was so bad that it continued to burn and degrade or something for days after the fight was fitted. Look, just make up your own answer here. Number six, the only toilet in the fleet. All right, here you go. Possibly my favorite fact we have ever done. Star Trek V was not a good film. The effects were all over the place. The third act just fell off a goddamn cliff. But it does include perhaps one of the most important moments in all of Star Trek history. While Kirk and Spock are in the brig and Kirk learns that Cybok is his half-brother. He is so overcome with emotion that he is forced to sit down. Freeze it! That seat that Captain Kirk takes in this moment is the only toilet ever seen in Star Trek. It is blink and you miss it stuff. And yes, he does not immediately drop trow and prove that it works, but that is still the only toilet ever seen in Star Trek. Some are hinted at. Yes, others are maybe even mentioned in passing. I will grant you, but that is it. That is it, the one and only in space. Number five, the amber deflector dish. Deflected dish, always quite a fascinating thing, given how inconsistently and just MacGuffin-y it is in Star Trek. But there was a really interesting wrinkle in the motion picture about it, which never got repeated anywhere else. So bottom line here, the model they used in the original Star Trek series was not well built. It was not elaborate. It was not complex. It wasn't even very expensive. But by the time they came to make the films, 2001 had happened and people expected a certain level of just depth and visual impressiveness out of ship models. So when they designed the Enterprise, they had money to spend, they had money to burn, and they went back to all of Gene Roddenberry's original ideas and started to put them into practice. He wanted lights on the outside of the ship to illuminate the name. He wanted lights in the nacelles to make them look alive and glowing. But also, he wanted a deflector dish that did things. It wasn't just a copper, big gold thing stuck on the front. He wanted it to do things to feel like a part of the ship. So for the motion picture, it started as quite a dull thing, then it would move into a copper, amber sort of thing, and finally it would glow brightly when the ship was at warp. And the reason for this was it was supposed to represent how much power the ship was using at the time. Quite why the deflect edition needed to show how much power the ship was using at the time. You could just have a little display on someone's computer, you would imagine. I don't know, but either way, that's what they wanted it for. So when it was at warp, it was glowing. But again, given how inconsistently the deflector dish used, they just bin this off from the Wrath of Khan onwards, and it was just kind of used with nice little lights and glow-up effects and whatnot, but nothing that ever really meant anything. But for the motion picture only, its lights had a purpose, which is, I don't know, I like it. 
Again, do you remember when we did the Enterprise E version of this and there was like this little funny inconsistency with how many decks it was? Like somebody says 23 and someone says 26 and someone says 27. It's all kind of like, it's roughly the same amount of decks, isn't it? But I just can't quite seem to agree how many there is. Right, now take that and now make it stupid. Make it Shatner. Every single technical manual or piece of kit or whatever always describes the Enterprise refit as between 21 and 23 decks tall. It's pretty much around the same thing. You can always kind of co-op decks and stuff. You can believe that's a consistent thing across the life of that ship. But then, of course, we got to Star Trek V, and they just gave the pen to old Bill Shatner and left the room. Anyway, in this film, there is a moment where Kirk, Spock, and McCoy escape Cyborg's henchmen by using a pair of gravity boots to rise the entire height of the ship. Now, putting aside the fact that you can't actually draw a straight line here from the bottom of the secondary hull to the top of the saucer section, let's just forget that for a second. You want to know how many decks they go through? So they go up and up and up and they go past a sign for deck 13. Fine, that's all right. Then deck 52, a bit weird. Then deck 52 again, really weird that. Then finally they come to a stop at deck 78. <laughs> now, two options here. Either the turbo lift shaft was out of order precisely because somebody desperately needed to repaint all of those signs, or more likely, as I've said, William Shatner. Number three, coming to the Enterprise A. Really, really short one. This just because you know how we like to talk about reuse sets and stuff and say, oh, they had it for this, they had it for that. This is even better. So Star Trek V, they wanted to show the shuttle bay all big and stuff, but they didn't have a set that was big enough to show the bigness of the shuttle bay. But thankfully, Eddie Murphy's Coming to America had just finished filming on a nearby lot and they let them have the Royal Palace. Yep, they turned, they turned that into the Enterprise Shuttle Bay. Why not? Number two, off-the-shelf Enterprise. Another quite quick one, this. You know how they build several models for the various different shots they need? Like, there's a big one and a little one for close-ups and stuff, and they have varying levels of detail and varying levels of lighting. Basically, in order to get the practical VFX shots back then, they needed several different scale models in order to properly capture the thing at certain distances and certain whatever. They needed lots of different models, right? Well, these models are all very expensively constructed, and they're all built in these proper big warehouses by these companies that make these beautiful, scale cinematic models, right? All of them, right? <laughs> just to let you know the kind of thing I'm talking about here, there is a 48-inch scale model of just the neck of the ship that was used just for the shots of the Reliant pulverizing it in the Rathacon. That's the kind of deal they go to here. No expense spare. They build really big, elaborate things unless, um, unless they're in a pinch. When they are in a pinch, like they were for Star Trek 6, The Undiscovered Country, and they just need one shot of it, just like, like about that big. They need a model about that big, just so when the Excelsior arrives, there's something that's like a nice medium distance away, and it just doesn't need to be an expensive one. It can't be a big one, because it's got to be at the right scale. And they just didn't quite have a model that was small enough for this shot. But thankfully, at the time, the USS Enterprise was the best-selling scale model replica kit you could buy in any hobby shop. So guess what they did? This shot right here in the Excelsior's view screen as it arrives at the Battle of Kitterman. That is not an expensively constructed Enterprise model. That is an off-the-shelf replica kit that your kids or you, I don't know, could hang up in your bedroom off the ceiling. That is, that's all that is. It was like $8 or something. Number one, the Enterprise A lives on. 
Now we tend not to get too far into, how do I put this, spurious non-canon source material, but the Enterprise A did have some really good ones, which I don't think hurt anybody by thinking of as fact. Basically, there was loads of tie-in novels all the way through the movies, which were canon and then weren't canon and then were raised and brought back and all that, etc, etc. You know the drill with these kind of things, but a couple of them should probably hang around. Specifically, I like the very last voyage of the ship, because of course, after the undiscovered country, it flies off. Fly? Do you fly in space? Zooms off, warps off into the sunset? Can the sun set in space? I've lost my train of thought here. It leaves. That was the last we see of it on screen, but in the tie-in novel Ashes of Eden, it was then decommissioned and sold to an alien race called the Shao as part of their defense fleet. Basically, it was an old, decrepit starship, so they sold it on for resources or, or whatever, and it got another run as an old, clapped-out, but nonetheless advanced for the people now running it, spaceship. And because you can't keep a good captain down, Kirk left Starfleet, went to work with the Shal to help them fight off a load of Klingons, and he brought Scotty along with him, so one last time, he got to fight the Klingons as the captain of the Enterprise, and lo and behold, it was blowed up. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.